guys. Today on Tales from Death Row, we are going to talk about Kevin Johnson, who is scheduled to be executed November 29th, 2022. He was convicted of the murder of Sergeant William McEntee from Missouri. Johnson had an outstanding warrant for a probation violation resulting from a misdemeanor assault. Around 5.20 on the evening of July 5th, 2005, Kirkwood police, with the knowledge of the warrant, they began to investigate a vehicle that they believed to be Johnson's at his residence in the Meacham Park neighborhood. The investigation was interrupted roughly around 5.30 when Johnson's younger brother had a seizure in the home next door to Johnson's residence. The family then sought help from the police who provided assistance until an ambulance and additional police, this included Sergeant McEntee, arrived. The brother was taken away to the hospital where he passed away from what they found was a pre-existing heart condition. Kevin Johnson was next door during this time the police, um, with everything going on with his brother, they suspended their search for him. They never saw him. After the police left, Johnson went and retrieved his black 9mm handgun from his vehicle. He was talking with friends that evening. He explained his brother's death. Um, he said, that's fucked up, man. They wasn't trying to help him. They was too busy looking for me. So he's upset and he is blaming his brother's death, um, or at least some of the fault onto the police. So around 7.30, two hours after Johnson's brother had the seizure, Sergeant McEntee responded to a report of fireworks in the neighborhood. So he came back to the neighborhood As Sergeant McEntee spoke with three juveniles about the fireworks, Kevin Johnson approached Sergeant McEntee's patrol car and squatted down to see into the passenger window. Johnson said, you killed my brother before firing his black handgun approximately five times. So Sergeant McEntee, he was shot in the head and the upper torso One of the juveniles was hit in the leg. Johnson then reached into the patrol car and took Sergeant McEntee's silver 40 caliber handgun. Afterwards, he proceeds to walk down the street. He's holding the the black and silver handguns. Um, Then he sees his mom and her boyfriend. And he told his mom, or he yelled to his mom, That motherfucker let my brother die. He needs to see what it feels like to die. His mom said back to him, that's not true. Uh, At this point, Kevin left his mother and continued to walk away. So while all this is going on, Sergeant McEntee's patrol car actually rolled down the street, hit a parked car, and then finally stopped and came to a rest when it hit a tree. At this point, Sergeant McEntee, he was alive, but he was bleeding, unable to talk. 
he gets out of the patrol car and he sat on his knees. Johnson reappeared and he shot Sergeant McEntee approximately two more times in the head. Then Sergeant McEntee collapsed onto the ground. After he collapsed onto the ground, Johnson went through uh, Sergeant McEntee's pockets before he left the scene. So Sergeant McEntee, he was shot a total of seven times in the head and upper torso. Six of the wounds were serious, but they did not render Sergeant McEntee unconscious or immediately incapacitated. There was one wound that was lethal that caused Sergeant McEntee's death. Um, all seven wounds were from the nine millimeter handgun. So this wasn't by any means a quick death. He had time to process this and kind of see it coming. You know, I just can't imagine. My heart just breaks for him and his family. But Johnson left the scene in his own car. He was cursing and he drove to his father's house. Once at his dad's house, he got a hold of a family member where he then spent three days at that family member's apartment before arrangements were made for him to surrender to a family member of his who was a police officer. It surprises me that after killing anybody, let alone a police officer though, that it was three days, three days um, later, but they, he surrendered himself. So Johnson was indicted on one count of first degree murder, one count of first degree robbery, one count of first degree assault, and three counts of armed criminal action. The murder count was severed from the other counts. Um, the first trial actually ended with a hung jury in the guilt phase. So during this trial, the jury deliberated for four hours before finding Johnson guilty of first-degree murder. Then in the penalty phase, they spent four hours deliberating. Um, even with this, so of course, after they decide uh, Johnson is going to put in his appeals, like what happens with most death penalty cases. He raised his appeal on 11 points. They denied all of the points. Um, I will cover a few of these here. Anything I don't get to, I will link below in the show notes. So you can go and check all that out for yourself. There will be a lot more detailed information that you can, that you can go through as you please. But... Um, let's see. So, one of the points that Johnson brought up was a juror non-disclosure. So, in this first point, Johnson argues that the trial court erred in overruling the motion for a new trial because 
um, one of the jurors, her last name is Broom, uh, failed to disclose when they were choosing the jury and at trial that she knew a state state's witness, um, Detective Scagmanilio. Sorry, totally butchered that, but uh, I did my best. He learned after the trial that the juror knew the detective, so he raised an issue in a motion for a new trial. So the record did show that while they were choosing jurors, that the state read the least the list of police witnesses, including this detective. Um, they then asked, are any of those names familiar to anybody as a county police officer? He then says, anybody, let me start back with the jury box. Does anybody know friends with county police or friends with county police officers? I won't even limit it to county. Does anybody have close friends with police officers, law enforcement officers? At this point, Broom disclosed that her stepbrother is a police officer. She didn't disclose that she knew the detective, though. So at the post-trial hearing, when asked about this, Broom said that she knew the detective from working with his wife. She said she did not respond uh, during the jury selection or during trial, because these are her words. Um, she said, it didn't register to me because he listed off a bunch of people, and I really didn't put two and two together because I hadn't seen him in over at least two and a half years. And when I seen him on the stand, I didn't, I'm like, oh, I, I didn't know what I could do. I had no idea. If I should have said, I didn't know. Broom then further testified at the hearing that she told her husband that she had seen Don there. And he was one of the ones who brought evidence. And that seemed to be the same evidence as the first time they had seen the previous pictures or trial. The trial court overruled the motion. They found that Broom's conduct was not non-disclosure. At worst, it was unintentional disclosure. Um, point two, he argues for a Batson challenge. So the state used a preemptory challenge to strike a juror from selection. So in response to the Batson challenge, the state's race neutral reasons were that the juror's unwillingness to answer death penalty questions and her role as a foster parent with, at a foster home that actually provided services to Johnson as a youth. Um, the court went ahead and allowed the strike. Johnson felt that she would have been more likely to be in her favor. Um, the, the court didn't agree on this because they went ahead and struck the motion. He also claims various trial court errors that they should have charged him with second degree murder instead of first degree murder. A motion for judgment of acquittal that the trial court erred in submitting the first degree murder jury instruction because the definition of deliberation is cool reflection for any amount of time, no matter how brief. 
reduces the distinction between first and second degree murder to imperceptibility. Um, and that the trial com court committed plain error in allowing the state to repeatedly argue that Johnson's conscious decision to shoot was deliberation. Prosecutor McCullough misled the jury, contravened the law, and created manifest, allowing argument that the jury had to acquit Johnson of first-degree murder to consider second-degree murder. Submitting the first-degree murder verdict failed to require unanimity to each element of first-degree murder. The record showed that Johnson retrieved his gun from his vehicle after his brother was taken to the hospital. He believed the police didn't help his brother. Um, two hours later is when he approached and said to Sergeant McEntee, you killed my brother. He then made the statement to his mother later on um, that he had let his brother die and that McEntee needed to see what it felt like to die. And then not only that, the appellant, Johnson, then walked around the neighborhood after initially shooting McEntee and then shot him two more times in the head. Uh, with all that said and done, they believed that no matter what, there was going to be sufficient evidence um, to find Johnson guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And that the distinction between first degree and second degree murder, that there was a cool down period there, even though it was only two hours, he, he still had to think and um, had an opportunity to change his mind, but he didn't. He also voted that there was an improper sentence. Um, he was upset that the trial court struck a juror because uh, she didn't believe in the death penalty. So, one of the most heartbreaking things in this trial is the victim impact statement. So, Johnson argues that the trial court erred in overruling his objection to admitting and reading a victim impact statement from Sergeant McAtee's son. He said it was hearsay and invited the sentence to be based on passion and emotion. So he didn't want, he felt like this victim statement was going to make people more upset and more mad right before imposing the sentencing, therefore giving him a harsher sentence than he would have. So Sergeant McEntee's wife was the one who read the letter that their nine-year-old son had wrote to his father. The son was 12 years old at the time of the trial and did not testify in the guilt or penalty phases. Johnson objected to the letter's admission. He said it was hearsay. Um, but the trial court judge overruled the objection and admitted the letter. On cross-examination, Johnson did not ask Mrs. McEntee any questions about the letter. So I'll go ahead and read the letter for you. Day one, the next day, I was all shook out about, all shook up about what happened. 
Day one, the next day. I was all shook up about what happened. I did not go outside until five o'clock. Day two, coming out. I was still sad, but I came out and went to my friend's house, Michael. I had a good time, but I miss him. Day three, layout. It was hard to get past. I was about to burst, but I didn't. I sat in a room for seven hours, wondering why I still didn't know. Nobody does know except the guy who did it. Day four, funeral. It was a sad day for me and everyone else. Then it was the end. Everyone said their goodbyes and they left. Then I wondered why. Those are the four most saddest days of my life. I am still sad today and I wonder why. It has been three to four months from then and we are doing better. I am sad because he was the best coach ever and no one who could take my dad's spot, nobody. He was also my baseball coach and I'm sad about him not being there when I need him. And I am lonely when I kick a soccer ball. He was the greatest dad ever. He was ready for soccer season and someone took his life away. I was so mad. I was in shock that night. I thought he would be okay, but I was wrong. He had passed away. Dad, if you hear me right now, I love you. In my personal opinion, it is a heartbreaking letter, but I absolutely think that that victim impact statement belonged in court because the, this is the fallout of those crimes. This is who's affected. This is what happens. And they should be more transparent about that. But now, at the same time, Johnson, when he was, when he was taken to jail to prison, he had a two-year-old daughter at the time. That two-year-old daughter is now 19 years old, and she wants to be present for Johnson's lethal injection tomorrow. The federal rules are that um, anyone over 21 cannot attend, and or the rules or the law is that anyone under 21 can not attend an execution. Um, they are claiming that it will cause her irreparable harm and that the daughter really wants to be there. She said that she built a relationship with him through prison visits and letters and that her dad is the most important person of her life, um, person in her life. So that the law barring under 21 serves no safety purposes and violates Remy's constitutional rights. Remy's his daughter. They have been trying to put stays on the execution for a couple different reasons. One um, of the appeals seeking to halt the execution says it didn't change, doesn't challenge his guilt, but it does claim that racism played a role in the decision to seek the death penalty and the jury's decision 
to sentence him to die due to Johnson being black and McEntee was white. Uh, Johnson's lawyers have also asked the courts to intervene for other reasons. They included a history of mental illness and his age. He was 19 at the time of the crimes. Since then, courts have increasingly moved away from sentencing teen offenders to death since 2005, um, when the Supreme Court banned the execution of offenders who are younger than 18 at the time of the crime. But as of now, there has been no court intervention. They have not found any grounds for it. And last I heard, the daughter was still not being permitted to attend the execution. So if anything changes, I will keep you posted. Otherwise, I will be back later with another story from Death Row.